Question for you. How is your daily life affected by the reality that one day Jesus Christ will return? Let me ask that question again. How is your daily life, all that you do, your thinking, your thought process, your actions, your words, your deeds, your relationships, your conversations, your work, your social life, how is your daily life affected by the reality that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return? So you cannot read 1 Thessalonians without this truth jumping off the page. It's unavoidable, isn't it? Christ is coming back. He's died on a cross. He's bore the full punishment of God in your place. He's risen again. He's smashed death to pieces. He's ascended into heaven. Yet the reality that Paul brings us back to time and time and time again, it's punctuated throughout this letter, is that Christ is coming back. How will this unchangeable, unescapable event, it is going to happen, it's set in history, it's going to happen at a future date, but how will this reality affect the nitty-gritty of daily living for you now as we walk through this life, however many years God grants us? Here's what I want you to do. person next to you, you don't do this often maybe, beginning of a sermon, I want you to picture your average day tomorrow your average Monday work, at home, at school, at college, at uni, wherever it is, picture that average day. Then with the person next to you, understand this is a hypothetical question, we don't know the hour or the day when Christ will return, but I want you to discuss for one minute with the person next to you, how would your day tomorrow be different if you knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow night? You've got one minute to discuss and I'll pull you back round. So I don't want to second guess what you've been talking about and maybe I don't even want to advocate that that is the day that you live tomorrow. I don't know what you've just spoken about. But here's the principle behind it. I reckon every one of your days tomorrow would be different if you knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow night. Look at my life, what would I do? I know what I'd do straight away. I'd jump in my car, I'd bomb back home, I'd stand before my mum and dad and I'd plead with them that they'd turn to Christ. Like nothing else, I'd go straight there. Straight to mum and dad. As I made my way there, Phone, phone book, hands-free obviously in the car. Every single person on my phone book, I'd want to know where they stood before God Almighty. Whether a Christian, where do you stand today though? Are you struggling? What are you struggling with? Are you ready for Christ's return? A non-Christian, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know your sins being dealt with? My day would be dramatically different, but not just in the area of evangelism. Here's another area where I think our days would be dramatically different. I think I'd guard my heart a little bit more, right? I think I'd be a bit wiser about the choices that I made. I think I'd fight sin harder in my life tomorrow if I knew that Christ was coming back. And see, this is where Paul now goes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because he homes in on the Christian lifestyle. The reality is Christ has died. The reality is Christ is coming back. The question for Paul now as we wander through the rest of our days that God has granted us is how will we live? Will we live our lives in the light of the return of Jesus Christ? And we're going to pick up on three areas in terms of what this lifestyle looks like, what this walk looks like. But before we do, because Paul really kicks off in verse 3 in terms of the details of the Christian walk. But let's go to verse 1 and 2 because here's our platform. Here's our foundation for the Christian walk. Let's read it again together. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for we know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. If you're following in an IV, finally, brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God. If you've got a slightly older translation, that word might say walk, it's the same thing. But I think the word walk is maybe a more helpful translation because the first thing I think we need to grasp about the Christian walk before we understand the details of it is the Christian walk is one of progression. The Christian walk is one of moving forward. The Christian walk is one of growth. See, I think a big danger for us today as Christians is that we get complacent, right? We reach a certain plateau, we reach a level in our lives and we think, well, so you're doing alright, that's not bad. Look how you've grown in the last few years. And we get complacent. But Paul in this letter warns us massively against complacency in the Christian life. So the church in Thessalonica, if anyone's got the right to be complacent, it's them. The church in Thessalonica are flying, they're going, well, look at verse 1. Instructing how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. The church in Thessalonica is living in a way that's pleasing to God. Back in chapter 1, their faith, their love, their hope has been known throughout the land. Not just in Thessalonica, in Macedonia, in Achaia, and everywhere. This is a good church. It's a church that is living in a godly way. It's a church that is walking in a way that's pleasing to God. But you see what Paul does? doesn't just give him a pat on the back, thumbs up, Thessalonica, well done. He does that, yeah? He thanks God for the faith of these guys. But then what does he do at the end of verse 1? Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Friends, never get complacent. Never ever get complacent in the Christian life because there is always room for growth. Verse 10, Paul goes on to speak about the lifestyle of love. He says exactly the same thing again. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Never get complacent in the Christian life. Never think we've cracked it. Never think we've made it. The day we think that is the day we cross the threshold of heaven. Until that time, there is always room for growth in the Christian life. And Paul says, before we look at the details of what the Christian walk looks like, understand, and understand for each one of us this morning, we've not yet cracked it. There is room for growth in every single one of our lives, whether we've been following Christ one year, 20 years, or 60 years. God has got work to do in your life to make you more like Christ before you cross the threshold of heaven. Point one, let's understand that the Christian walk is one of progression. Here's a second observation from verse 2. Let's understand that the Christian walk is one of submission. Submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The Christian life is one of submission to Jesus Christ. See the word instructions there? It's a military word. It's a military word. It's literally commands. It's literally orders from a commanding officer to his foot soldiers. Who's our commanding officer? It's Christ. It's God himself who broke into this world, who became flesh and went to the cross and died for you and he says, now live for me. These are my orders. These are my instructions to you. And let's understand that these instructions aren't instructions of how we, how we saved. It's not a bar, it's not a, a level that we have to meet in order to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But Paul says, now you understand that, Thessalonians. Now you understand that, friends. You know what Christ has done. You know he's coming back. Now the response is this, go and live for me. 
Go and live, go and walk in a way that is pleasing to me because I'm your commanding officer and I died for you and I demand your life in response. Will we understand that? Will we understand firstly that the Christian walk is one of progression, it's one of moving forward, let's never ever get complacent. And will we understand that these commands this morning as we look at them are not the words of man, they're not my words, they're not even Paul's words. These are the words of Christ himself. These are his instructions to you this morning, as relevant for us today as they were for the Thessalonians who first read them 2,000 years ago. That's the backdrop. Now let's look at the detail. Three things um, we're going to look at. Firstly, the walk of holiness. Three aspects of this Christian walk. What does it look like for me? What does it look like for you this morning to walk in a way that is pleasing to God? Here's the first point in verses 3 to 8. It's to walk in holiness. Verse 3. wonder if you've ever asked the question, what's God's will for my life? Here Christians ask it all the time, don't you? And they're after some, maybe some weird and wonderful answer. They want massive detail about what God's will is in their life. Paul's ever so simple. This is God's will for you. It is God's will, verse 3, that you should be sanctified. What is God's will for your life as you're sat here this morning? It is that you should be sanctified. What does sanctification mean? To sanctify is literally to separate from. Paul says, let your life be separated from sin. Be cut off from sin. Identify your sin. Know where your sin is and then rip it off and say, I'm going to cut that part of my life off. I'm going to separate myself from sin. It's what a holy life is. A holy life is a set-apart life. We were living for self. We were living for sin. Paul says, Jesus died for you on a cross. Your life is now set apart for me, you're set apart from sin, and you're set apart to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a holy life. And you see the progress, the progression of the Christian life is one of sanctification. It's a continual surrender of self, setting aside of sin, saying, I understand this is an area in my life that I struggle with. And I'm going to set it apart, and with your help, God, I'm going to cut that area of my life out. It is one of sanctification. And you see Paul's opening gambit here, he goes on to home in on a big issue in Thessalonica, one of that, that of sexual immorality. But before he does that, his opening gambit in verse 3 is a very general one. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Before he homes in on a specific issue, God's will that you should be sanctified. I want you to search your hearts this morning. I want you to look deep inside your own heart. What are the areas of your life What are the sins that are pulling you back? What are the things that are tripping you up in life? What are the areas that keep bouncing back, that you're trying to get on top of, but you know you keep messing up with time and time and time again? Paul says it's your will. It's his will. It's God's will, in fact, that you should be sanctified from sin in that area of your life. So as we work through the issue in Thessalonica, as we are homing on this big issue, sexual immorality, Let's, let's broaden it out. Let's understand that it's exactly the same principles that we talk through that apply to every single area of life. Will you allow God to sanctify you and put to death the sin in your life, whatever that area is, to so know it? Do you know what it is? Because we've all got them. We've all got those areas in your life, so bear it in mind as we work our way through. But here's where Paul now goes. He homes in on the big issue in Thessalonica at the time. Let me read um, verses 3 to 5. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, 
that each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. What was the big issue in Thessalonica in first century Greece? Sexual laxity, sexual immorality. It was absolutely rife throughout their world. It was part of religious practices and other religions and other gods that they worshipped. It was part of the culture. It was the norm. It was the norm. It was the norm. It was the norm. And see, I hold the world of Thessalonica there and I hold our world here today. And it's maybe not a big jump, is it? It's not a big jump to go from Thessalonica in first century Greece to Oxford today. Sexual immorality is rife. Wherever we go, whatever we look at, we're told that it's the norm and we're told that it's fine. We can't walk into a news agent without seeing images displayed everywhere, men and women. We can't watch television and films and soaps without without being persuaded that this is the norm and it's okay. Adultery is fine, sexual immorality is fine, sexual lust is fine, it's no problem at all. See, we live in a world today so, so similar to the world that these guys lived in. We live in a world today filled with sexual immorality. And look at the word Paul uses to describe it in verse 5. It's a frightening word, really. This is what sexual lust, this is what the desires of the heart do. Filled with passionate lust. The heathen, the unconverted, the ones that don't know God, they're filled with passionate lust for sexual sin and sexual adultery and sexual immorality. It draws them in. They can't escape it. It draws them in. It it grips them. I don't know whether you know much about the hunting uh, techniques of Eskimos. But I saw a programme a couple of years ago. We'll get there, don't worry. (laughs) This is how Eskimos kill wolves in the Arctic. I found this very interesting, right? What they do is wolves are addicted to the scent of blood. They're drawn in. They're drawn into the smell and they're drawn into the taste of blood. What Eskimos do is they cut themselves with a knife, so there's blood on the knife, then they ram the knife in upside down into the ice. And what happens is the wolves from miles around, they've got amazing smell, they get drawn in. They get drawn into this blood, they smell it. What do they do when they go to the knife? They lick it. And they get excited because they like the taste of blood, they like the smell of blood, and they get drawn back in again. And they get caught up in this frenzy and they just keep licking it and licking it, and they love the taste of their own blood and they're drawn, it's a passionate lust, it's an excitement, it's a desire. Do you see where it ends? It ends in destruction. It ends in destruction. And Paul says it's exactly the same thing with a Christian life. This is what sin does. It creates this lust, this passionate drive, this excitement in our hearts and it draws us in and we sample it and we want a bit more and we go back for more and it wraps us up and it draws us in and we get consumed by it. But if we don't get on top of it, the reality is Paul says it will lead to destruction. But you see an utter contrast to the reality of the world, to our hearts that lust after these things. What should the Christian life be like? Look again at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It's a bit of a weak word, it's more abstain. Abstain, get right away from sexual immorality. In fact, flee from sexual immorality, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. Don't harbour the thoughts, don't even ponder it, don't think about it, it'll consume you. It'll take over your mind, it'll take over your heart, it will lead to affecting your actions. Don't even harbour the thoughts of sexual immorality. Get right on top of them, avoid them and flee from them. Verse 4, that each of you should learn how to control his own body. The difference 
So control is uncontrolled, isn't it? It's passionate lust. It's, it's, your desire, it's your heart taking over without you really knowing what's going on. Paul says, learn how to control your body. Be practical. Put things in place that are going to help ourselves in these areas. Understand that it's an issue. Identify it. And then we begin to work out, with God's help, how we can conquer these areas of sin in our life. And finally, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to lead a holy life. See the contrast? The sinful desires of our heart still long for it. We get drawn in by it. Paul says, no, abstain, be self-controlled, learn how to control your bodies and lead a holy life, not an impure life. See, maybe you're sat there this morning though and you say, easy said and done, isn't it? It's easy to say these things. I know there's issues in my life. I know there's areas in my life, whether it's sexual immorality or lust or whether it's another area altogether. We all struggle in different areas. But maybe you're sat there saying, I'm trying to conquer it. I'm trying to conquer it. I know it's an issue. I know Christ has died for me. I know he's coming back, but it's a struggle. How do I do it? How do I do it? I think the answer's in verse 6. The answer's in verse 5, in fact. Not in passionate lust, like the heathen who do not know God. See, the problem is that we don't know God, or we don't know God well enough. The antidote, the solution to unholy living, is that we know God better. The more we understand God and his goodness and who he is and his character and his divinity in all his characteristics, the more we understand Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, the more we understand this return that is coming, the more that will begin to shape our lives. Got a fourfold battle plan for us this morning. Fourfold battle plan that we can put into place to help us get on top of these problems in our lives. And here's the first one. It's four Ps. Understand this morning that we are the possession of God. We're the possession of God. God owns us. We are his. He owns us firstly by right of creation. He made us. He made you. He made everything you are. And he made you for a reason. He made you to glorify him. He made you to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Yet what do we do? God stuff you. No thanks. My life, yeah? My time. We wake up each morning knowing fully that we're God's possession. He's earnestly loved us and went to the cross for us. Will that not affect the people that we are, the choices that we make, the things that we do, and how hard we battle and fight sin in our own lives? Understand first, and remember that we're the possession of God. Secondly, let's understand and recognise the power of God. Verse 8. Firstly, understand that we're the possession of God. Secondly, we need to recognise the power of God. Let's look to verse 8. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So here's the big punch at the end of verse 8, isn't it? Those times when we reject God, those times when our lives fall into sin, We're not just rejecting man's instruction. We're not rejecting Paul's instruction. We're not rejecting my instruction. We're rejecting God himself's instruction. We're working in direct opposition to the work of God by his Holy Spirit in our lives. But here's the beauty of this reality as well. 
understand that if you're in Christ today and you believe in him, God lives in you, in his fullness, in your life, in your heart. He lives and breathes within you. And the truth is, he will be victorious over your sin. It is a long process and like we said, it will not be complete until we take that final step over the threshold of heaven. It's a process until we reach there. But understand, we do not walk the Christian walk on our own. It's not a tiresome battle of me. Can I get on top of my sin? Can I beat sin myself? No. God's Holy Spirit lives in you and it fights for you in your life and it will be victorious. It will be victorious. Because God's Holy Spirit is more powerful than the sinful human nature. And it's a process and I pray to God that it be quicker. Because I look at my own life and I'm sure you look at your life and you say... If only it was a quicker process. But understand it's a battle that's ultimately been won for you in Christ and is being won day by day by day as the Spirit cuts off the sinful nature, as it helps you identify sin and say, nah, nah, I'm going to put that to death. Of course, we've got to be responsible, right? We've got to be responsible. It's our job to get the Bibles open. The Word of God is a sword of the Spirit. How does the Spirit do its work? as we open up God's word, as it cuts deep into our hearts, as it convicts us of our sin, as it shows us how we get on top of our sin, it shows us the solutions, and it points us back to Christ time and time and time again. But understand that God's fighting the battle for you inside your own heart. Remember, we're the possession of God. Recognise the power of God in your life. And thirdly, here's my favourite one. Relish the pleasures of God. What is your greatest treasure in life? As you're sat here, what is your greatest treasure in life? Because our greatest treasure in life should be God, right? Our greatest treasure in life, the highest end of the gospel, is that we're brought back to God, that we know God in all his fullness. God is the all-satisfying God. God is the God of all goodness. Psalm 16, verse 11 Eternal joy, everlasting pleasures at the right hand of God. Where do we find joy? Where do we find satisfaction in life? From being reunited to our Saviour, from being reunited to God. See, it is a lie of this world and it is a lie of Satan that sin will satisfy. It is a lie that sexual immorality will satisfy the human heart. It will not. It may give you temporary excitement, but it's not deep joy. It's not deep-rooted joy. It's not satisfaction. All that sin does is remove joy. It removes satisfaction because it takes you away from your Saviour. Understand the pleasures of God. Understand the magnitude of who God is and what he's done for you. And we know this reality in our life. We do. We know it. The greatest moments of joy in your life, I can guarantee you, are those moments that you fight sin and you live in ways that are pleasing to God. Let me take you back to seven years ago, converted after university, converted out of a big drinking culture. For six months, it was an enormous battle, absolutely enormous battle to get on, this, on top of this area of drink. And there's those moments when I remember being sat there in the pub and the boys come back with the third round of the evening. I said, no, I'm sticking to two pints tonight. That's my limit. I know things go a bit AWOL after that. And I'm there, I've got the pint in my hand, and in that moment I can choose to please God and glorify him with my action, or I can choose to please self and go my own way. Then you catch the plant pot out the corner of your eye. In goes the pint, yeah? And I'm just like, yes! Yes! Victory, yeah? 
Victory. Because walking in a way that is pleasing to God will satisfy the human soul. It's the reason for which you were created. You were created to please God and live for Him. And you'll be never totally satisfied in life until you're doing that. We know it, don't we? The times when we're gossiping and people are talking about each other behind their backs and you're about to jump in and add your ten pence worth and you're like, mm 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 And you're like, no, 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 Wellesley, stop. Victory, yeah? You know those victories. Those times when you're there, I'll take you to football again because this is a big one for me, in the changing room. Someone throws out the question of Jesus. All goes quiet. Nightmare, yeah? Hush, silence, in the change room. Wellesley, the floor is yours. You've been asked a question about Jesus. What are you going to do? Are you going to speak of him? Are you going to glorify him? Are you going to be ashamed and hide away? And those moments where you take the opportunity to stand tall and say, this is why I believe in Jesus Christ, are they not the greatest moments of joy in the Christian life? Are they not the greatest moments of satisfaction in the Christian life? Because it's the reason for which we were created and we will never be truly satisfied until we're walking in a way that is pleasing to God. Relish the pleasures of God. And then our final one, and briefly, understand the punishment of God as well. Let's have a look at the end of verse 6. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For the unconverted, for the person that does not turn to Christ, then they are storing up wrath for themselves for the end of time when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and they will pay the penalty for their sin. Of course, if you're sat here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, then that judgment has been paid for you. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to deal with all your sin, past, present and future. There is no condemnation at the end of time. There's no condemnation now for you as a Christian. But understand this, there are still consequences in the now, in this life, when we sin, when we turn our back on God. The issue of sexual immorality highlights it more than any other, doesn't it? Broken marriages, broken relationships, divorce, pain for children. There are massive consequences now for turning our back on Christ day by day by day. If you truly trust in him, your eternal judgment has been paid. You understand there are still consequences now. It's an instruction from Paul that we lead a sanctified and a holy life, a life set apart from sin, a life where we continually throw sin to one side and say, I want to live to please God. Understand that we're the possession of God. Remind ourselves of the power of God. Relish the pleasures of God. And recognise that there is a punishment still. There is a consequence in this life. Will we walk in ways that are pleasing to God? Will we walk in holiness? That's our first point. And that's our longest point. Second point. Will we walk in love? Not just walk in holiness. Not just set apart from sin. But will we love each other. Let's go verse 9 and 10. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. They're going well again, yeah? Church in Thessalonica love their brothers, they love each other throughout Macedonia. What is Paul's instruction? Love each other more and more. To the church in Thessalonica, they probably needed a gentle reminder, a gentle instruction from Paul to continue to love each other. But I think I need a decent kick. And I think some of you might need a decent boot as well sometimes. 
because we so fail to love each other as we should truly love each other. What does it look, to lo- what does it look like to love each other in this world? guess you could go no further than Christ himself, do you? No greater love than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. But as soon as we read through 1 Thessalonians, do we not have a wonderful picture of Paul's love for the people in Thessalonica? A wonderful picture of how much he was concerned, how much he loved, how much he cared for the people around him. Let's just flip back to verse 13 of chapter 3. And let's backtrack actually, because understand how much Paul loved these people. He was in Thessalonica for three weeks, he preached Christ, the Holy Spirit did its work, people were converted, the church in Thessalonica came about, Paul was chased out of Thessalonica by a hate mob, he couldn't go back, he was torn away, he literally felt divorced from these people who loved them so much. He was desperate. Paul was desperate to know how his friends in Thessalonica were carrying on. Were they still continuing in Christ? Were they trusting in him? What does Paul do? Timothy... Timothy's little sidekick, get to Thessalonica, mate. I want to know how my friends are doing. Timothy goes, they're going well. Comes back to Paul, good news, Paul. The guys in Thessalonica are bombing on. They're trusting Christ. Their lives are full of faith and love and hope. Paul, yes. Paul is absolutely thrilled. But what's the next thing he does? He gets down on his knees before God Almighty and he prays that their hearts will be strengthened. Verse 13, a real insight into Paul's heart. May he, God, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. What is the heart of Paul's prayer? For his friends, for the dear ones that he loves, that he seems to come to know and trust in Christ that they continue firstly to be rooted in him, they continue to trust in him until the day they take their final breath. But not only that, that their hearts are strengthened, that they grow and grow and grow in love. So I look into Paul's heart, and then I look into my heart, and I think there's a big difference. Do we love each other in Morden Road Church? Do we love our brothers and sisters throughout Oxfordshire like Paul loved the church in Thessalonica? So I think this is a massive danger for church. Here, at this moment in time, no. But in many churches, what you see happen is people come to church and it's just a bit of a social club, right? We turn up, we get our hour done, we have a few teas and coffees and then we bomb home. But we don't know where our friends, where our brothers and sisters stand before God Almighty. Will we be people that love each other? Will we be people that ask the hard questions? Not just our banter about football and what the games were on a Saturday, but we ask each other, we say, how were you this week? How was your week? What were your struggles? Can I pray for you? Can we meet up? Can we read the Bible? Where do you stand before God? Are you still trusting in Him? Do we ask each other the hard questions? Is our greatest concern, our greatest passion for each other that we will be presented right and holy and blameless before God on that final day? Because for me, I think it's not. Not as much as it should be, certainly. And so I was massively convicted when I was, re- when I was uh, prepping this. I've got a lad called Chris Beck, who I've known for a long time growing up. Um, he was a Christian, been a Christian from the age of 13, 14. And he prayed for me for six years. As an un-Christian, he prayed for me for six years that I'd come to know Christ. He wasn't the final um, piece in the jigsaw, if you like. That happened after university on the back of another lad praying for me and telling me about Jesus. But I know his prayers were ever so valuable. Heard two years ago through another friend, I sort of lost a bit of contact with him, that he's really struggling. 
really, really struggling in his Christian walk. He'd pretty much thrown the towel in and turned his back on Christ. I reckon those two years, I've rang him probably five times. Rubbish, right? Rubbish. Here's my mate Chris Beck. Do I dearly not want to see Chris Beck in heaven? Do I dearly not want to see him walking for Christ? And yet I've rang him probably five times. How bothered am I about Chris Beck? I'm going to go and ring him now. Seriously, I'm going to ring him this week. But the challenge is for all of us, isn't it? Who are those people? Who are those people in church? Who are the people that maybe on the fringe that disappeared? There's people that were here a month ago, a year ago, that are no longer part of this fellowship. Where have they gone? Do we know? Do we love them? Have we cared for them? What about people in our lives five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago? They still trust in Christ? Do we know? Paul was desperate beyond belief that these people would continue in Christ. He loved them like nothing else. Will we be people like Paul that look out for each other, that walk in love, not just holiness, but love each other like Paul loved them, like the church in Thessalonica. Walk in holiness, walk in love, and finally, walk in humility. Verse 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul says, now make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What's a quiet life? It's an honest, hard work in life. doesn't mean we leave here and we stop talking about Jesus. It's not that sort of quiet at all. It's an honest walk of humility. That we go back to the places God's called us to be, we go back to our work, we go back to our school, we go back to our university, our colleges, we go back to our sports teams and we lead quiet lives. We walk with humility, we walk with honesty and we're absolutely class at everything that God's given us. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. So that people look at you and they go, there's something different. There's something massively different. I don't know what it is. I just love the way they go about their business. They work hard. They never twine. They're always honest. They never gossip behind my back. They're always loving. They've always got time for me. There's something ever so different. And then that outsider goes and meets another Christian. What do they see? If only they see the same thing. They see someone hard working who gives it everything with what God has given them who's patient, who's kind, who's caring, who's loving, who's got time for people, and they go, hold on a minute, he's a Christian, he's a Christian, why are they so different? Then he meets someone else. Then he meets someone else. Is that not Christian witness? That we live lives of holiness, we live lives of love, and we walk in humility and honesty, and we work hard for the Gospel. These are the lives that Paul calls us to lead. And see... The consequence is that outsiders are drawn to Christ in you, right? The people that do not know Christ see something different and they want something of it. That was what led me to Christ age 22, seeing a difference in a friend that I played football with at university. It took him a year before he verbally told me about Jesus. But as I watched him, I saw something different and I didn't know what it was, but I said, I want that. People will be drawn to Christ as Christ lives in you. We use three words at Christians in Sport that summarise the work completely. Pray, play and say. We want to help people pray for their lost friends. 
want to help people play in a way that honours God. and want to help people be ready to say something, the good news of Jesus. This morning, Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's all about play, yeah? What does it look like to play, to live as a Christian, whether it's in sport, in work, in school, wherever that may be? It looks like this. To walk in holiness, to walk in love, and to walk in humility. And if our life is grounded in this, if we're behind the scenes praying diligently for lost friends that they'll know Christ, the opportunities to say something of Jesus will come. And then we've got the most glorious news of all, we've got the gospel. And we speak clearly and we speak relevantly of Jesus. And the outsiders that live and breathe and walk and live alongside us will be drawn to Christ in you and we pray that God does a wonderful work in their life. Then they join the team. Then God begins to sanctify them, areas of their life as they set apart sin and they go and live for him and they go out and make a difference in the lost world for Jesus. See the process? What's God's will for our life? That we're sanctified. It's as simple as that. That we need lives set apart for him and his purposes and his glory alone. The final challenge this morning is will we be those people? Will we live in the light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we walk in holiness? Will we walk in love? Will we walk in humility? Will we live each day on the edge of eternity? We don't know when our final day will come. We don't know when Christ will return. But will we take every single step in the light that it may be that next moment and that we give absolutely everything for him as we long to see a world transformed for Jesus and lives displaying the glory of God? That's the challenge for us. Let's pray.